At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Joel Karsten to talk about straw bale gardening. Joel is a farm boy who grew up tending a soil garden like others have for many centuries. But he shook up the gardening world with his first book on his breakthrough concept, Straw Bale Gardening. Joel earned a BS in horticulture from the University of Minnesota and spends his summers tending his garden doing research and experimenting with new ideas and methods he can pass along to his followers. Joel has inspired many tens of thousands of first-time gardeners and a legion of seasoned growers who have found a new and better way to pursue their passion. His methods have even enabled retired gardeners to begin gardening again since his method eliminates the physical challenges found in traditional soil gardening. Welcome to the show today, Joel. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks and share with us more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, it's been a, a long and winding road. I, uh, as my bio says, I grew up on a farm, a dairy farm, crop and dairy farm down, oh, wow. in, southwest, down in southwest Minnesota. Uh-huh. If for those who grew up on dairy farms, you know that you can take vacations anytime you want as long as you're back to the farm within two and a half hours. <laughs> there you go. Early on, I, I learned to garden essentially from my grandma, my grandma Josephine, and we garden in the soil like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would notice every time when we would bale straw or bale hay, we'd come back to the yard once in a while, we'd have a broken bale, you know, with a string that was broken, and mm-hmm. dad would just throw it up against the barn and, you know, think that we would pick it up later, but we never did. And eventually those bales would start to decompose. And some of the biggest, tallest, healthiest thistles on the whole farm were the ones that would grow out of these bales that were decomposing up by the barn. Interesting. And so I kind of remembered that as as I was a kid. And now we fast forward 15 years. I graduate from the University of Minnesota with a degree in horticulture. Mm -hmm. And I buy my first house in a suburb up here of St. Paul. And it turns out the house I bought only had about an inch of topsoil. Oh, wow. as a horticulturist, we know that you're not going to grow very much with one inch of topsoil. And as a farm kid, I knew that, you know, not much grows without at least six or eight inches of good topsoil. Mm-hmm. Right. But I had a problem. I had just graduated college and I just bought a house. So I was pretty much the definition of the word broke. <laughs> I, <laughs> right. I didn't have 200 bucks to build raised beds, which is what a normal vegetable gardener would do. You'd build raised beds and go about the traditional method using compost or whatever you soil that you brought in to, right. to garden in. But I did remember at that point how there used to be those bales laying against the barn and how weeds seemed to grow really well. At this point, I now understood that the the actual nutrient profile that it takes to grow healthy thistles is very similar to the nutrient profile it takes 
to grow healthy tomatoes and healthy peppers. Oh, interesting. So I thought, you know, why wouldn't that work for these other plants varieties? Mm-hmm. So I called my dad. A long story short, I did an experiment that first year and tried some different methods on a, a bunch of different bales, sort of a research plot with 50 bales, 10 plots with five bales in each plot, and and tried to figure out what would work best. And that was 23 years ago this oh, spring. Wow. Uh, when I did that first experiment. And ever since then, I've sort of perfected the method behind how to do it. I've added certain things that make it easier for people and really make it a foolproof technique. The protocol that I've developed, you can do this organically or you can use traditional sources of nitrogen like lawn fertilizers or you can use organic sources of nitrogen. I've used both protocols myself right? and both of them work as long as you follow the the proper method. So Essentially, that's that's kind of how I got to where I am. I started writing uh, books about this topic about seven years ago, a self-published book, and then I put that out on this little startup website called Facebook. Oh, <laughs> there you <laughs> that go. Changed everything. Facebook made a real difference. That little booklet started shipping all over the world, and then people would come back and they'd show pictures of these beautiful gardens they had grown up above the Arctic Circle. Oh wow! Last or you know, in Norway or Sweden or in South Africa and mm-hmm. Australia and New Zealand and in tropical climates and in cold climates and arid climates, really any different climate where you where you can grow anything, you know, it has to be above freezing for some period of time and you have to have sun and you have to have water. Right. That's really the only things you need. Uh, you don't need to have great soil. I have people that do this in a parking lot with bales of straw. So you really, uh, it takes away that need to have good quality soil to have soil that's not contaminated that can be an issue in certain parts of the country right especially urban areas where mm-hmm. they have lots of soil contamination and straw bales help solve all those problems wow all right great so what exactly is straw bale gardening well that's a common question i get that a lot people drive by and they see somebody standing out there with a water hose watering a bale of straw <laughs> and often they ask their neighbor have you lost your marbles you know what's happening here are you right. going to bring goats in your backyard or what And then you explain to them, no, that's not really what I'm doing. What I'm going to do is grow a vegetable garden because here's what happens inside that bale. And this is what people need to understand. This is fundamental to the process. We're not actually growing anything in straw. What we're growing things in is very recently decomposed straw inside that bale, which is essentially biologically that's soil. Right. It's the molecules of the oats or the wheat or the barley, or if you're using hay, it could be alfalfa, could be a grass of some kind, mm-hmm. in that tightly compressed bale that we feed the bacteria that are in that bale for a couple of weeks. That's why we give that bale a source of nitrogen. That nitrogen feeds the bacteria. Bacteria right. colonize inside that bale. Now, bacteria are really small. You can't see them, but you can feel them because that bale will tend to warm up. Oh, yes, it's of course. Inside. And as those bacteria colonize that bale very quickly, they begin the process of decomposing, deconstructing the cells that made up the oats plant, wheat plant, barley plant, whatever it is inside that bale. And when they break those cells down, they free up the molecules that were used to create those cells. And that's where your nutrients come uh, from. Perfect. The actual nutrient molecules to then be reabsorbed by the roots of another plant. Mm-hmm. So this is not a situation where you know we're just adding nutrients to the bale on a continuous basis to feed the plants. We just add the nitrogen early in this process to feed the bacteria. The bacteria then decompose the organic material and that breaking down of that 
is what actually feeds our plants that we put in there. It happens very rapidly. Uh-huh. Um, if it's really warm in your in your area when you begin this protocol to, mm-hmm. to condition the bales, it can happen very, very rapidly. You know, eight, seven or eight days, you're ready to plant. If it's a little cooler, like it is up here in Minnesota where uh-huh. we are, sometimes in the middle of your, your application of nitrogen during that period of time, you can get a cold snap and you sort of got to pick up where you left off as yeah. soon as it warms up a little bit. So it can take a little bit longer, you know, sometimes 15 to 20 days to get those bales prepared. So I always tell people to prep ahead of time about 20 days before your last frost, wherever mm. you are, mm-hmm. or before you normally would ever risk planting in the garden. And usually I get my plants in the garden anywhere from eight to 10 days before that last frost, average last frost date. I'll start putting things into the garden ready. Wow. Um, and so that's a real big advantage, you know, because those bales are nice and warm. warm exactly. Soil, soil might be 50 degrees. Inside the bales, it could be 130 degrees or 120 degrees. So you wait for it to just cool down a little bit till it gets just under 105 degrees. And then I'm safe to plant my tomatoes and peppers and all my other warm season crops in those bales. Um, and then that gives them a big jump start. You know, you get oh, really rapid root production early in the spring. And then the next question, of course, I get is, well, what happens if a cold front comes through and you get a late spring frost? Uh-huh. I talk about this in my books. I talk about building a straw bale greenhouse. So this is essentially uh, where we put a yes. plastic cover over the top of the bales. Yep. And we use some posts and wire to do that, make a little tent over the top of the bales. And we tuck the tent in the strings on the sides of the bales. And that helps hold that oh, radiant heat coming out of the bale underneath that, that little tent. And allows you to plant out much earlier than you ever would and not have to worry about that late spring frost that might come through. Joel, I have to tell you, that is absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you. That I appreciate is it. absolutely great. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your website, which is strawbalegardens.com. Mm-hmm. And you have these pictures that are flashing by. And the first one looks like a bunch of tomatoes planted out in straw bales with okay. stake with the stakes around it so the stakes are the are what hold up your uh your temporary greenhouse right exactly yeah we use i just use fence posts you know i'm a farm kid grew up on a farm exactly you just go to your local farm store a lot of hardware stores will carry them big tall t-posts they're yep. called they're real cheap you know yep. seven eight bucks a piece and you pound those in the ground and they're there forever you know right. if you move the bales out the old bales and put in new bales and set up your irrigation system and the structure itself is permanent those posts and then wires back and forth between the posts uh-huh. and now your tomatoes and your cucumbers and your squash and your beans and your peas and everything climbs up these wires that are strung between the posts that provides a real nice trellis yeah and you get the tall posts the eight or nine foot posts that way you got a nice tall seven foot trellis yep and those tomatoes trust me will climb all the way to the top very quickly yeah wow and so it looks like what you've done is maybe hollowed out the center of the bale just a little bit and put your nitrogen in there, right? Oh, we don't hollow it out at all. All okay. we do is dump the nitrogen material on the top and then water it in. And when we do plant seeds, you know, uh-huh. a couple of weeks into the process, it's time to do seeds. We need to make a seed bed on the top. So then oh, right. we just use sterile planting mix. That's important. You don't want to just take a shovel of soil out of your garden. Right. Because when you take a shovel of soil... Guess what topsoil has in it? Lots of weed seeds yep. that are pre-existing. Yeah. And it might also have disease problems from last year's garden or insect problems from last year's garden. And if we start with brand new soil, which is really what's inside of this bale, mm-hmm. and then we put a little thin one-inch layer on top of clean, sterile potting mix just to hold our seeds in place until they germinate, we have an, essentially a sterile environment where there's no weed seeds 
there's no disease or insects already present inside that environment. So it gives us a, a little head start, a little jump start on helping prevent those those issues. This is the number one thing people love and rave about about strawberry gardening is the fact that they don't have to pull any weeds. Yeah, I, I, I'm sitting over here in awe. I've been gardening it for 40 years here in Phoenix. And number two amazing thing about this is if you're doing it with fresh new soil, like what you're creating here, you don't have weeds, you don't have pathogens, there's less bugs in the space. Exactly. You know, and if you were to go garden only in potting mix uh -huh. or you know, br fresh potting mix, you, you'd go broke because it's super expensive. Oh, yeah. Or we get a we get a 14 cubic foot volume inside of a nice big straw bale. Right. That's equal to seven two cubic foot bags of potting mix. Right. And a straw bale is five bucks, you know, four or five bucks. Uh, one bag, one two cubic foot bag of potting mix can be ten, twelve dollars. So it's very cost effective in terms of a container garden to garden wow. in these big straw bales. And you get a lot of stuff in there. You know, you put oh, a, yeah. a tomato and a couple basils and a, you know, a, you know, you can plant multitude of different things in in just one bale. But you know, I have gardeners that plant a hundred bales or you know, <laughs> big big growers. They have big gardens. We have one down in Tennessee that does seven thousand bales. So. Wow. Uh, a commercial grower. You yeah. Know? But they, they justify it because they're the very first ones with ripe tomatoes and they're the very first yep. ones with gladiolus. You know, they plant bulbs in the bales and they bulbs bloom earlier. So right. if you're the first one at a farmer's market with a certain crop, you clean up, you know, you clean up on sales. Oh, yeah, exactly. Farmers That's so, always the challenge. How do you yeah. go early and how do you go later in the yes. season to bring the food? So, so one of the other pictures on the front page of strawbalegardens.com it looks like cabbage and it looks like you have six or eight cabbage heads in one straw bale well yeah it depends on how big your bales are right and it depends on what kind of cabbage you're growing mm -hmm. so there's a, a few variables there you want to plant a similar spacing to what you would plant in the ground you plant a little bit tighter uh -huh. uh, because the bales are elevated off the ground and you get a little better air circulation because yep. of that yeah so you can plant slightly tighter but you know, I really don't recommend crowding things together. You'll see, you'll grow the biggest cabbage you've ever grown in your life. I get, <laughs> I got these pictures on, uh, our, we have a really popular Facebook page called Learn to Grow a Strawbale Garden. And I got had some pictures posted there a couple of years ago. This guy up in Alaska uh -huh. that planted his straw bales with heads of cabbage, but he had the bales about two feet apart. Well, it didn't take very long. And here these heads of cabbage were bumping into each other in the <laughs> middle of that row of bales. So he had to literally grab the bales and scoot them over in order to keep the plant separated because they were already touching each other. So, you know, depending on what variety of cabbage you grow, it can get pretty big. So I'd keep them, you know, two or three heads per bale at the most yeah. in most situations. And what was that Facebook page? It's called Learn to Grow a straw bale garden. Wow. All right. Cool. That's now, on Facebook. I, you can tell I set that up years ago before I knew anything at all about marketing because it's a long name to have to remember, learn to grow a straw bale garden. But we have close to 100,000, about 95,000 uh, yeah. real excited followers. Wow. And they, you know, they post uh, put pictures about their gardens. There's lots of groups on on uh, Facebook as well. Oh, with, yeah. You know, three, 4,000 members that talk about straw bale gardening a lot too. Perfect. So, if anybody's interested in finding information or asking questions and stuff, that's a really good resource. You're going to hear back from from people that have done it. You know, not just me who preaches about it, but other people who have become fanatical strawberry gardeners as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have ninety four thousand. Where is it? Ninety four thousand three hundred and sixty seven. Well, three hundred and sixty eight now because I just liked it. 
There you um, go. Yeah. Wow. This is really cool. I'm, I've always just grown in the ground and a little bit of hydroponics, so I'd never really considered this. And this is opening up a whole new picture for me of how to grow food. This is so fascinating. Yep. You know, I get a lot of people who are real experienced gardeners. I get the, I get the brand new gardener who's never had a garden in their life. Uh-huh. And they see this as, you know, the millennials shortcut solution to solving a problem. You know, uh-huh. They want right. to have fresh vegetables. They want to grow it themselves, but they don't want to do the work that it takes in a, of a traditional garden. Mm-hmm. So they see this sort of as a technology that they can adapt and be able to use in their garden. And they want to be healthy. You know, they want to grow their own produce and they want to stay organic, et cetera. And this is a great solution for them. But then on the other end of the spectrum, I mm-hmm. get folks that have gardened their whole life, you know, and now they're to the point where they can't do the physical work anymore. You know, right. getting down on the ground is not so easy. As my grandma Josephine used to say, getting down's easy is getting up. That's the hard part. Exactly. So, you know, as you get older, that can become an issue. Mm-hmm. This way you don't have to get down on the ground. You know, you bend over to knee height, you can plant and harvest all at that raised height. And it doesn't, you don't have to rototill, you know, you don't have to do weeding on a regular basis. And if you set up a soaker hose on top of the bales with a little automated hose end timer, one of those battery powered timers, yep. now you don't even have to remember to water. You just <laughs> let the thing turn on for a couple times a day for a couple minutes at a time. Yep. And it takes care of watering your garden for you as well. So it really is a solution for, for new gardeners, for gardeners who've been doing this forever. They, they see the value in it. But, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you that I don't get skeptics. I do. I get people that, you know, the worst ones to tell you the truth are the master gardeners. Oh, the yes. People who, you know, they're experts at what they know, which is soil gardening, and they're just skeptical because they've tried different things, you know, right. and it doesn't work like the guy said it was going to work. And I say, you know, I don't want to convince you to convert your whole garden. Just try one or two bales. Yep. And then get back to me. And it always happens. They'll try a couple of bales, and then they get hooked on it. Before you know it, they've converted their whole garden. I can <laughs> cite example after example of how that's happened over the years. But it really does because people see how easy it is and really how how little labor it takes to yeah. get a very productive vegetable garden. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I grow most of our vegetables in the front yard here at the urban farm in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, all right, where can I put my first straw bale garden in the front yard? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking also that uh, once – as the bales age, they just break down in place, right? You just yeah. spread them and then put new ones on top. Yeah, exactly. Or you can use that compost. One thing we talk about in the, the newest book I wrote, which is Straw Bale Gardens Complete, is we talk about using last year's bale that's, you know, half decomposed, mm-hmm. three quarters decomposed, and then mixing that in with leaves and grass clippings and oh, you know, yeah. trimmings off of your lilac bush, what, whatever you have that's organic material that would normally go in your compost bin, mm-hmm. you're going to mix all that stuff together and you're going to make new bales out of it. And I show you in the book step by step no. how you can manufacture your own bales. And mm-hmm. anybody wow. can put, if, if, you, if you spend the money to buy, I call it the Bale Maker 3000, uh-huh. it's, essentially it's a long lever that you use to really squish the bales tight to yep. make them even tighter than a baling machine that a farmer owns than a baler can make them. You can get them really tight, and that'll cost you fifteen dollars to make one of those balers if you if you make it following the instructions I give them in the book. Wow, so it really is a simple way to use up organic material. You know, my vegetable peelings from in the house, all of that stuff goes into my bales mm-hmm. the next spring. So it doesn't have to be straw. That's the other thing that people need to understand. If you live in a part of the country where you don't have straw, you only have hay bales, yep. well, hay, hay bales will work also. Right. Um, it, or you can make your own bales. You know, last year at, in my home garden here, I did about 10 
straw bales and 15 or 14, I think it was, handmade bales, homemade mm-hmm. bales. And the homemade bales actually outperform on a per bale basis, outperform the, the original straw bale. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it's just, you know, it's really basic biology and it's, it's right. basic composting that, that we've captured, that we've sort of encapsulated in this method is that's what we're doing. We're composting straw bales is really mm-hmm. what we're doing, but we're not turning the compost and we're not, you know, doing the traditional things. We're not putting it in a compost bin. We're just getting it to very rapidly decompose using the same technology it's bacteria that decomposes your compost right and your compost pile heats up as it decomposes it's the same basic procedure perfect so um i'm looking i'm still on your website this is so fascinating and you have a copy of your book straw bale gardens complete you told us a little bit about it let's dig into that a little more tell us more about the book what what can i find in there well, we, the, one of the things people find really useful, I mean, it goes through everything step by step, exactly how to set up a garden and what to plant and how, you know, how many to plant per bale. Then we have a glossary in the back of the book. We cover all the major vegetable groups and we recommend different varieties that seem to do well in straw bales of those, of those different vegetables. Uh-huh. And then we also break down how many of that plant you would put in each bale. So that glossary can be really helpful for somebody that's planning a garden. We also put some really nice illustrations. The artwork is, is beautiful. Oh, I do the artwork. That, that was an illustrator that did it, but of, of different designs of straw bale gardens, just to give you some ideas of how you might put your garden together. Right. And you know, you can certainly substitute things in herbs do really well in straw bales. Oh yes. Um, as do your root crops, you know, your potatoes, sweet potatoes do amazingly well. Um, carrots Ooh. and turnips and beets and potatoes you know, like, maybe. Yeah. Potatoes do exceptionally oh. well. Yep. So we kind of show people some examples of different things they can mix together. You know, I'm not going to say that I'm some genius, literary genius who Uh wrote this book. I have a degree in horticulture. You know, my wife still makes fun of me because sometimes I misspell stuff. (laughs) I don't don't know how you can have a best-selling book and you can't spell, you know. So she she likes to make fun of me. It's not that it's a, a, you know, extraordinary piece of literature. It's a very functional tool for people. And it communicates well, and I don't tra- try to talk above people. A lot of times when you read these horticulture books, you know, they try to pre- put on airs and pretend like they know more than you do yep. and make you feel bad when you're reading yeah. their book. I, don't, I try not to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I assume that not everybody understands the, the fundamentals and the basics. So we talk about a lot of that stuff in the book. And, you know, thankfully, my publisher's done a great job of, of marketing the book and mm-hmm. I've had lots of chances to go all over the world and speak about it. The book's now in multitude of different languages, 20 languages, I think. And since its original publication back in 2013, it's been the number one selling gardening title on planet Earth. Really? So, yes. So it's done It's done really well, which I'm very fortunate. Wow. You know, Congratulations. Have, thank, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's given me lots of great opportunities. You know, who would have thought this little farm boy from, you know, southwest Minnesota would have been in France, speaking to the Paris Horticultural Society and the you know, International Garden Festival in Charmont in the Loire Valley and all these great opportunities I've had to speak at home and garden shows all uh-huh. across the United States. So Well I have to I have to tell you, I've been and I mentioned this earlier, I've been gardening. I'm fifty five years old and I've been gardening for forty one years now. And this is one of the more fascinating gardening techniques that I've found out about, and I'm just finding out about it as you're sharing it with me. So this is this is like a major wow 
Well, today's your day, your lucky day. I know, isn't this great? So I'm also, I'm still playing on your website. As we're talking, I'm, I'm kind of looking at your website. You have a list of scheduled upcoming public events on your website um, yeah. that goes I, out six months maybe? Yeah, that's only the only the public events. I do lots of private ones nice. too that aren't listed on there. Last year I did 161 appearances in the wow. spring in four months. So it's very busy, sometimes two and three appearances a day, you know, talking at a library and yep. a school and a, yeah, exactly. you know, and a garden group or a, a spring garden function or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do lots of things. I used to, I used to do more travel and do lots of home and garden shows and things. Yeah. But I've kind of gotten to the point now where I don't do that as much. Um, I just can't take the, the travel, you know, <laughs> flying all over the place. I do a few events, you know, in cities that I'd like to go to anyway. I might as well have somebody pay me to come and speak as to pay my own way. So right. um, I still do some events, but a lot of the stuff I do now is really local because it's it's super popular here in, in this climate. I speak a lot in the state of Wisconsin. Gardening is very popular there, as it is in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, Iowa, I do a lot of engagements, and then North and South Dakota as well. And then, believe it or not, Oregon is a is a, Oregon and Washington are are really gardeners. They they oh, love yeah, their that garden. Makes perfect sense. Um, so I I do several engagements out there. I have one actually coming up in of all places, Nevada. So oh wow, in Nevada, I have an event coming up. So it's strange places, and you know sometimes you you get some people that are a little skeptical and they, they have uh-huh. a reason, you know, if you've right. lived in Nevada and you've gardened in rock your whole life <laughs> and sand and all of a sudden somebody tells you, Oh, I got the solution. I got the answer. And you've tried everything to get a decent garden, you know, and along comes some guy who's going to tell you he's got the, the answer. You know, I get a lot of skeptics. Yeah. Once I get a chance to explain the biology and explain yeah, okay. what's really the science behind what's really happening and and show them pictures you know and it's not just me anymore i've gotten to the point now where if somebody is says well that that'll never work i say that's okay you know if you don't if you don't believe it that's okay i don't have to convince everybody in the world somebody else is going to come along you're going to run into them they're going to say oh my god i tried a struggle garden and it's the greatest thing ever and i said of course i'm going to say that because i created it i pioneered the method and i'm i'm the biggest fan there is about it right but i've got I got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people now all over the world that are doing it and they're convincing their friends and their relatives nice. and their, you know, people from church and the school groups and it's just continuing to, to spread. Yeah. Fantastic. So I hear you presented at the Homegrown Food Summit last year. Can you tell us about what you talked about? Sure, absolutely. What, first of all, I just want to say, you know, I think that's a wonderful, the Homegrown Food Summit is a wonderful resource for people. If oh my gosh, yes. If you're not involved, you definitely should. It's a great place to, to speak to people who really are my kind of people, you know, who, yeah. who are interested in the same kind of things I am. And, you know, there's nothing I am a bigger fan of than growing a backyard garden. It doesn't have to be a big garden. You know, that's what I tell people is what we need to start thinking about and sort of repositioning gardening. Mm-hmm. in people's mind, in their mindset. Instead of thinking about gardening as a hobby that you do and you go out and get your hands dirty and, you know, back to the earth, think about it as healthcare. This is upstream mm-hmm. healthcare, folks. This is teaching your children or your grandchildren how to grow a fresh tomato and a fresh pepper and some cucumbers and some fresh greens, which are the easiest things in the world to grow. And now you got your your grandkid or your kid who's not a fan of 
green peppers or tomatoes or cucumbers, but now they grew it themselves or they participated in the process and it can fundamentally reset their brain. And now they're going to try that cucumber. They're going to eat that green pepper and it changes how they feel about produce and about fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. It changes them fundamentally at the core and it can change their entire life pattern in how they eat and understanding how to cook with fresh vegetables and how to preserve can things, freeze things mm-hmm. for use later in the season as yeah. well. That's a great lesson for, for young kids. It's something that's always taught at the Homegrown Food Summit. Now, I talked a lot about straw bale gardening, but I'm just passionate about gardening in general. I, and I think tell. the first visit somebody makes to a doctor where the doctor can see that they're, you know, they're a little heavy for their age mm-hmm. or they have pre-diabetic symptoms. The first prescription before he gets out that pad and sends them to the drugstore should be go home and grow a garden Yeah, because it's going to get you out of the house. It's yep. going to get you some exercise. You're going to get some vitamin D and some sunshine and you're going to grow some stuff and eat it. And you can't go wrong no matter what you eat out of a garden. You absolutely are not going to go wrong eating your own fresh grown produce versus buying stuff that's from the store or that's processed. Yeah. Um, you know, and and sort of resetting people's mind about their the way they comprehend gardening. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times people think, oh, it's something my grandma did when I was a kid. And right. It seems like a lot of work. And every time she came in, her hands were dirty and she was sweating. And I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> that's sort of the mindset where if we can change the fundamental thinking to, you know, this is going to make me healthier and give me a better lifestyle. And if not for me, for my children, yes, I'm going to help them. Yeah, um, it's the greatest gift you can give a child or a grandchild is to teach them how to garden. The other thing that I find fundamental with growing something, mm-hmm. you know, growing your own food in your backyard, is one of the biggest problems we have in the in the commercial production and distribution of fruits and vegetables is that consumers go to the grocery store and they go to the shelf that has uh, or the bin that has tomatoes. And if there's a tomato laying in that bin and it has one blemish on yep. the outside of the tomato, they will pick all the tomatoes around it and they'll leave the one with the blemish sit there. And then, of course, the retailer sends it back to the distributor that they got it from. The distributor goes back to the farmer and says, hey, buddy, don't send me any more tomatoes that got a blemish on them because I end up having to throw them away. Mm-hmm. So now the farmer tells his field guys, hey, every time you get a tomato that has one little mark on it, let's throw that one away. Or yeah. Let's not use that one. And that raises the prices of produce and it when you bow to consumers like that by only giving them picture perfect produce you destroy the distribution chain you make everything more expensive more expensive if you grow your own tomato at home and it has a little blemish on the peeling i'll darn bet you you're going to eat it absolutely you're going to cut it up and eat it no matter what. And you know what you're going to figure out? That you didn't die. You didn't die because you <laughs> ate a tomato that had a blemish. Of course. And it's going to start to change people's mindsets so yeah. that when they go to the grocery store, they're going to be a little more forgiving of someone else who grew a tomato or a cucumber that doesn't look absolutely perfect but tastes just fine. Right. And that can help reset the the distribution system of food and yeah. a lot less waste of our production. And there's so incredibly much waste. I love one of the things you said. You said upstream health care. Yes. Uh, I, I really consider gardening to uh-huh. be fundamental to health care. You yeah. know, we had so many problems in this world with health care. And most of them, if you examine a lot of these issues, come back to 
people being overweight, obese. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've I wrestled heavyweight when I was in high school. I mean, I've had a problem. I, my dad weighs 340 pounds. You know, uh-huh. and you know, our whole family genetically is prone to be overweight. So I've fought it my whole life. And gardening has been a big part of it. You know, being able to eat fresh vegetables, yeah. fruits and vegetables especially as I get older and avoid those processed foods and those simple carbohydrates that are so easy, pour out of a box and sticking with fresh vegetables or in the spring and summer and and stuff that I've done that I've preserved or canned for yep. my winter produce right. um, really can change fundamentally how you eat and your, and your health. Yeah. Well, I, I know we don't completely understand the world of uh, cellular biology still doesn't understand how nutrition affects us in the long run in terms of disease prevention. But I have to think it has a fundamental, you know, there's some fundamental issues there. If you if your cells in your body aren't properly getting proper nutrition, that that can cause all kinds of disease issues. Oh, to big flip. time. Um, especially things like diabetes. Yeah. You know? I mean, I've seen this happen. I, I've got some great stories of these, these wonderful public housing facilities that we're mm-hmm. working with. They, you know, they have thousands of residents and one of their big problems that they have is, uh, they got lots of turnover, you know, 20, 30, 40% every year are moving out. And new people are moving in because right. there's no, there's no sense of community yep. in, in there. Well, one of the things that, that is a proposed solution in many of these environments is to start a community garden, yep. get people involved in community gardening. Yeah. Well, the big problem for a lot of them is we have one in Detroit, you go out in their, in their parking lot and find a spot, you know, in the grass where you'd like to have a garden, take a soil sample and send it in. Oh, yeah. And it comes back and it says, oh, you got high mercury and high lead and you know, yep. there's no way you can do it. It's in, these are in former industrial areas that the soil's just spoiled. Well, the cost to mitigate that soil is outrageous. Haul the soil away and bring in new soil. That would cost way too much money. But we can come in there with a semi and we can unroll some ground cloth or landscape fabric, uh-huh. we put down long rows of straw bales, we set up a drip irrigation system on a timer, and 10 days later, after we condition those bales, that garden's ready to plant. Now, these people don't have to worry as much about weeding, and they don't have to remember to water every day because it's all automated. Right. They're successful. They go out and plant, and by golly, four weeks later, they're already starting to harvest some of their crops. And they're immediately successful. And I've seen this change people's lives. You know, people that come in and they say, you know, I grew for the first time in my life, I grew, you know, 12 red pepper plants and green pepper plants and tomatoes. And now when you, and we brought a chef in to to work with them on on how to use this produce that they're, that they're, you know, they have bushels of green peppers. Yeah, exactly. Well, we taught them how to make jelly, uh, green pepper. So hot, hot green pepper jelly. Oh my gosh. Delicious. and this woman comes up to me and gave me a jar of her green pepper jelly. And she said, I'm 36. She said, I have four children. And she said, this is the very first Christmas in my life where I've been able to give other people Christmas gifts. She said, financially, I just could never afford it. She said, I made 60 pints oh, of nice. green, pepper, green pepper jelly. And I'm going to hand it out to my kids' teachers, to my friends, to my family. Everybody's getting this jars of green pepper jelly and it was fabulous. I yeah. opened it, ate some of it. It was absolutely delicious. And it really changed. You could just see her attitude uh-huh. completely change towards gardening and sort of just her yeah. attitude towards life because of this garden. She felt a lot more connected to her neighbors and, yeah. and her community. And anybody who's ever been involved in community garden will attest that it really can change how you feel about your neighbors 
um, you know, even the ones that aren't part of the garden, you know, ones that just walk by and, and you yep. tend to be outside more and you communicate more. It really can change your life being involved in the community garden. Yeah. That's a big thread through a lot of my conversations with people on the podcast. It's how it builds community. So this all kind of drives to w- one of my favorite questions and that's what's your big, why, what drives you in this? What's your, why do you do what you do? Well, it's, it kind of goes back to when I got started writing the, the book. You know, I had done strawberry gardening because necessity is the mother of all invention, right? Uh-huh. I, I didn't have topsoil and I didn't have 200 bucks, so I couldn't build raised beds. So right. I, my alternative was to use strawberry. So that's how I began the, the initial, you know, starting point. But it was 14, 13 years later before somebody said to me, and it was a TV reporter who heard about the way I grow vegetables and came over and put it on TV. He said, you should write a book about this. I could could never write a book. I said, I I have a degree in horticulture. You know, there's no way I could write a book. And he Mm -hmm. said, you got to write this down. So it was that that sort of inspired the first book. Well, then the fact that after he put it on TV, I got 250 phone calls that said, can you send me the instructions for how to do this? Exactly. He's right. I should have written a book. So um, so that was my first little pamphlet that I wrote that turned into a self-published book. And as soon as that hit Facebook, you know, I sold a lot of copies of that all over. And then the publishers came to me and said, we think you should write a real book. Right. Australia. And I said, well, I thought I already wrote a real book. <laughs> and they said, no, a real book is where we take professional pictures and then we keep most of the money. Then it's a real book. Yeah. So... <laughs> So we wrote Strawbell Gardens, and I wrote Strawbell Gardens in 2013. And of course, they hire professional photographers oh, yeah. and people to design the book and everything. And they were, you know, they were excited about it, but they had no idea how well the book was going to do. Uh-huh. When, it hit, when it hit the ground, I mean, they they went through one printing, and two weeks later, it was another printing, and the third <laughs> printing. Before the summer was over, we had done 15 printings of the book. Wow! And it was just flying off the shelf, mm-hmm. and. And it didn't slow down. The next spring, it sold just as well. So then, of course, they wanted a second book, a follow-up book for the spring of 2015. And there was a few things in researching making these bales and some other common questions I got from people that I thought really should be addressed. Right. And maybe modify the book a little bit, build it up a little bit, add some more pages and some more of this cover some more subjects that I hadn't covered in the first book. Uh-huh. And so that's why we did the second edition, The Straw Bell Gardens Complete to be a little more comprehensive. That book has done, since the other one is now out of print, that one has done extraordinarily well nice. taking its place as well. So, um, and that's kind of how I got to where I am. But, you know, obviously I, I, you know, my passion is, I grew up on a farm. I grew up, my dad also had a tree nursery because he didn't think milk and cows would keep us busy enough. So we started a tree nursery <laughs> as well. Um, so I've been around horticulture my whole yeah. life. And it's really what I love. I have a, I actually have another business as well, a small manufacturing company, and we make some different products in the in the injection molded plastics business. Oh, interesting it things, but uh, but my true love is is horticulture, and yeah. I love to teach people about it, and I love you know seeing people light up when they're able to accomplish things for yeah. the first time and be successful. You can't, I can't tell you how many people have said, I'll never be able to grow a garden because I don't have a green thumb. Everything yep. I deal with always dies. Yep. And right. I'll talk to them a year later when I go back to their town and I talk again, they'll come up to me with pictures. They always uh-huh. bring pictures of their garden because yep. they want to show me their beautiful garden they grew. And I say, I have never grown anything in my life and look at how beautiful <laughs> this garden is. And they're just so proud of it. Nice. Know? So that makes me feel good oh, yes. to see that accomplishment in other people. And, and I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I want to 
you know, I want to leave a little legacy. Of and course. I'm, I have to not, my wife and I never had children. And so I, you kind of, if you have children, you feel like you're leaving a legacy behind, yep. you know, I really don't have that. So this is kind of my legacy that I'd like to leave behind. Fantastic. So, and I'm all about education and I have to know what, is there a book out there? Obviously beside yours, is there a book out there that was highly influential for you in this process? You know, I have a first edition of Ruth Stout's book called the no work garden book. Wow. And that is, that was, you know, I, I read a lot, so uh-huh. I've, I've read a lot of books, but in terms of gardening influence, I would mm-hmm. say she writes very similar in style to the way I write. She kind of writes the way she speaks. Uh-huh. Uh, well, she's, she's long passed away now. You know, this was, she wrote mm-hmm. this book in the sixties. Yeah. Probably before I was even born, she was writing books. So, but she reminds me a lot of my grandma, my grandma Josephine, who taught me how to garden. And she mm. she came up with a whole new way of gardening that sort of bucked the system. Yep. And she was what we call a deep mulcher for any of your listeners who don't know what, what she's famous for. She came up with the method of using hay, actually. She used grass hay real deep to cover the soil. And then she would spread the grass hay apart, you know, 10, 12 inches deep. She'd spread it apart and plant still in the soil, uh-huh. but she would never till the soil. Yep. She would just let this hay decompose, and that provided nutrients and held in moisture and great place for worms and things to, to reside underneath there, and insects, of course, and kept the weeds down significantly. And if there were any weeds, they're rooted into this loose hay, so they're real easy to easy pull. Easy to pull, exactly. Yeah, and she made it very less labor-intensive. Yeah. Um, probably on a square-foot basis, not as productive, my guess would be. Uh, as a traditional gardener might be, but that's okay. You know, if you have the space and you you really are about not having to to work so hard. Exactly. Uh, that's why the title of the book is a no work garden book, and that right. that really influenced me a lot. And I started thinking about gardening differently after I read her book. Yeah, there's there is definitely a connection between the two of us in terms of the thought process and and the fact that we did things that people said that's not going to work. I mean, yeah. when I first started the strawberry garden. I wasn't dumb enough to just, you know, do an experiment. I did a little research. I went to the libraries and I called my old professors at the university and I said, has anybody done this? I'd like to read a book about it. I'd like to re- read a paper that somebody's written about doing this. And everybody told me, oh, there's nothing out there. We can't, we don't know of any information that's ever been published about this, but I don't think it's going to work. Right. I really don't think it's going to work. Yep. That's what I heard from everybody. So, uh-huh. Um, you know, so she's kind of in the same, was in the same boat back in the sixties, early sixties, where everybody was talking about, you know, advancements in seed technology and, and, uh, you know, using chemical fertilizers and all these other things. And she went against the system and that's why people call her one of the original organic gardeners. Yep. Um, and the fact that she liked to garden naked, that helped, that helped (laughs) popularity as well. Yeah. She, and she's got some great, great videos out there. So look up Ruth Stout. Yeah, yeah, she's very good. Yeah. So what is one final piece of advice you have for our listeners? If you've never grown a garden, today's your lucky day. You need to get out there and and start a straw bale garden. It doesn't have to be big. Try one bale and it will get you hooked. I'm telling you, it will get you hooked. It will really make a difference in your life having a garden. If, if, uh, If you're looking for fulfillment in life, having a garden is a great way to get there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experiences with us today, Joel. It's been a great treat to chat with you. How, how can right. our listeners get a hold of you? 
You know, they can always reach me on my website, strawbillgardens.com. And from the website, of course, there's links to all my internet stuff, you know, the Facebook and the Twitter account and Instagram and all that stuff is all linked from the Facebook yeah, page. Exactly so, perfect. And my, I give my phone number. If you look around on the website, people think I'm nuts. How do you put <laughs> on your website when put you get that there. much traffic? But, you know, I don't mind taking calls from people. Um, I'm happy to answer questions for people. If I'm, if I'm not available, they have to leave a message and I, usually right. I get back to them. Um, email is probably the best way to reach me. And my, I give my email address out in multiple places on my website. Right. So. What is your email address? Just joel at strawbellgardens.com. Perfect. Very simple. Once so again, thank you. Whoever wants to email me, they can do that. Perfect. Thank you for having me again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been a very eye-opening for a uh, guy that's been growing food for 41 years. Well, you have to try a couple of bales and let me know how you think. What do you think? I am heading that direction. All right. Sounds great. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.